Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox with me in Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. Ben, any news to share with the crowd? Uh, nothing big. Have I told you that I'm watching the show Mars on Netflix? Uh, no. Oh, Never yeah. Heard of it either. I, I mean, I really like it. It's not your typical show. It's not science fiction. It's science future. Like, it's a show that tries to realistically predict what will happen when we go to Mars. It's a speculative documentary. Yes. But they do a good job because they they keep going back and forth between 2016, when I think it was made, and... 2030 and then 2040 and they'll like show you you know something they'll something will happen with the people on mars and you you're kind of wondering like i wonder if that would actually happen and then they flash back to 2016 and they parallel it with things that are happening here so like fighting over resources and they're like look this kind of stuff has happened here it's not very unlikely that uh, this wouldn't continue. It probably would in similar ways. And um, yeah, it's just like this show that kind of tries to grapple with what is likely to happen and the technological challenges, but also just like the human aspect of it and how people would likely interact in a place far away. Um, yeah, it's cool. I like it. But it's only two seasons and I'm almost done. Awesome. That sounds uh, sounds interesting. Do you think uh, how how realistic is it that like you will go to space at some point during your lifetime? That's a good question. I, my gut reaction is that it's not super realistic, but the reality is that change is happening and it's happening exponentially faster every decade. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. so I imagine by the time I'm 60, it will like 20 years from now, it will be, like, duh. Yeah. I don't know, though. At the same time, remember uh, when we landed on the moon, everybody was like, okay, 10 years from now, we're going to be hitting Mars. But then the political will fell out. And one thing that uh, Elon Musk has said is he said that the reason he's working so hard, or at least one of the reasons he's working so hard to get to Mars, is that he feels like this might only be a window of opportunity. Like, we have the money, the resources to put together a company or you know a government that has the wherewithal to get to Mars, but we always assume that things just get better and that it may get worse, right? In 20 years, you have like a nuclear problem or war or something like that, and then everything is set back and no one has the time or the effort or the money to put to getting to Mars. So this may be a window that's closing. And unless you break out of it, you're never going to. It's an interesting, interesting. thought. Anyways. Yeah. So I don't know. My prediction is probably, but who knows? Probably you yourself. Would go to space. Yeah, that's a, that's a decent possibility. I mean, especially with all these companies that are coming up with ways to get to space. If you're talking about getting to Mars, though, that's almost certainly no. Yeah, maybe one of your boys. Maybe, yeah. Uh, today on the show, we are going to talk about uh, top-down versus bottom-up, because we got a listener question about that. Okay. That's a LSAT logical reasoning topic. We're going to talk about flaw questions. We uh, have a question. A listener asks, Ben apparently has a test for when to do worlds. 
according to a listener. Hmm. So we'll interrogate Ben about that. Okay. Um, old recommendations. I actually don't. Oh, this is maybe something about letters of recommendation and a question from a listener. Uh, we have a, a, an article about law school debt. See if there's anything interesting in there. We have a question about uh, finding a new career in law, and we have a couple of writing samples, time permitting. Oh, these are uh, the LSAT uh, LSAT writing people. A few episodes ago, we put out the call for uh, if anybody wanted to submit a writing sample, we would take a look at it. Oh, yeah, cool. Cool, cool. So this will air on, if all goes well, uh, this will air on Monday, December 16th. That means we are just three days away from the November LSAT score release. Uh, Boy, that feels like it was a long time ago, the November LSAT. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yep, as of today, we're still a week (laughs) away from the release. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, did anything good come out of the release of the digital LSAT? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. I'm struggling to think what that might be. So far, it just doesn't seem like anything good has happened, only bad things. Well, I think that the release of the digital LSAT prompted at least you and I to like look at helping people prepare for the test digitally, which allowed us to create the demon, which I think is more effective than all the books that I've created in the past because it <laughs> yeah. adapts to you, right? Unlike yeah. books. And so um, I like that. And it's also like at least opened the LSAC to like managing this digital content in a way that they didn't before. They were so protective of their digital content. They just couldn't even imagine I mean, they had PDF. It was weird. It was like they were so protective, but at the same time, because they were letting people download PDFs, they were all over the internet. So <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah. but I like that. Like pushing the ball forward has somewhat allowed them to like grapple with new ways of managing this content. All right, that all's pretty speculative. <laughs> you you like the idea of the digital LSAT? It does seem like it's promising that things might happen that are like good for applicants but um what we've seen happen so far in the real world for most applicants is just uh, either no change at all or um problems that have happened at the various testing centers yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) the the score you know the registration it seems like now that oh now it's digital everything will be so much more efficient this you know we'll just you'll be able to register and go take it two weeks from now and then you'll get your score immediately. No, <laughs> there's still like, you have to register six weeks in advance and don't get your score for three weeks later. And it's, uh, they haven't really tightened that up yet. So we're, we're hopeful for 2020. I think they will. I think it's going to take them longer than they expected and what we would hope. But I imagine in a year or so, now, that's my New Year's resolution. That's your New Year's resolution? Can you yeah, make a resolution for, for someone for else? For them to get their shit together, yep. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, would sure lo- that'd be easier, right? Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should make resolutions for other people and then just hold them accountable. Like, uh, I was hoping you'd work out more. <laughs> anyway. Here, I took a before picture of you, and now it's the end it's of the worse. year, and I want to just... You can't tell the difference... Or it's if you can tell the difference, it's not a good story for you. So 
Come on. Yeah. I'll make the same resolution this year that I did last year for you, which is get your shit together. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, let's see that LSAT. Oh, um, there, the next LSAT that, that, uh, listeners might be taking is, uh, Monday, January the 13th. Uh, that deadline already came and went. There's a, another registration deadline coming up on January 7th, and that is for the February 22nd LSAT. So yeah, that's a solid six weeks in advance that you have to sign up for that February 22nd LSAT. Okay. More tests to come in April and, uh, sorry, in uh, March and April. And then have they announced any test dates beyond March and April? I was trying to look that up yesterday, but I didn't find it. The last I checked, was about, which was about a week ago, they had not. So the June LSAT, I'm speculating. We could, hey, we could do a bet here. What, you call it a, a over or under or something like that? Anyways, uh-huh. June 8th, that's my guess. I think, wait, is that right? Yeah, June 8th, that's my prediction. I suspect it's going to be on Monday, June 8th. I'm going to double down on that. I think that you... Um, you probably did your research and it doesn't seem like they could do one before that. Yeah. And if they did one after that, they're going to have a hard time getting to nine in the year. So that sounds about right. You can email the show if you would like to uh, do fun things like speculate whether you'll make it to Mars someday or whether Ben will make it to Mars or uh, you could maybe pick which one of Ben's kids you think is going to make it to Mars. Mm, Yeah. Um, you you could just say number one, two, three, four. Which one do you think is going to make it yeah. to Mars? Which is the best one, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> which is the best kid? Yeah. Which which one's your favorite? Which one's my favorite? Well, yeah, I'm a, more just or objectively the best. Probably the same one. The best. Oh, you know, it's yeah. actually tough. I I say this honestly, not as a as a good father who would say, "Oh, I love them all," um, but they're all very different, and it kind of shocks me how different they all are in their talents. So I've talked about the second one a lot on the show because he's obsessed with math and money, and he's going to be very rich, but. <laughs> He's not okay. as emotionally in, in tune as, like, the, say, the third one. The third one's like, I mean, that guy can read people, like, a mile away. And so, you know, they all have their different talents that they bring to the table. But when it comes to going to Mars, um, I would probably put my money on the second because it's going to take some money and discipline, and I think he's he's got a lot of that. Uh-huh. Okay, good. All right, so number two is Ben's favorite kid. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> let's see uh did you have you uh just happened to come up with any weirdest lsat lr questions to add to our list we've got five questions here oh uh no i haven't thought about that okay all right call to listeners if you uh, wanted to add anything to our list of weirdest lsat logical reasoning questions uh you know we got the dioxin one the han purple one the bees vision one we got lots of questions for our weirdest LR list. If you want to add to that, uh, just email help at thinkinglsat.com. Oh, you know, maybe that, uh, never mind. Never mind. I was going to say that police officer one, you know, where the police officer, uh, Oh, gets an award. Like you can get an award. You can be eligible for an award. Oh yeah. I didn't think that that question is weird at all. No, it's not weird, but I, 
I like um, how they basically try to test your understanding of necessary versus efficient, like uh-huh. to the nth degree. You know, it's some. It's it was written by a test writer who's like, okay, let's push this concept to its limit. Whereas, like some tests, some questions, it's like they test sufficient versus necessary, but people get it right for the wrong reason because there's some like easy reason to choose uh, the right answer. Uh, even if that's not the like the fundamental reason why it's right, the same is true with that mountain one. You know the mountain one where it's like uh, rainwater will increase after mild winters. Ooh, I want to put that on the list. Although I have a real good that that's one that used to really stump me, and now it's just like seems very obvious. Maybe I've just drank the Kool Aid, but it. It just oh, seems very obvious why the right answer is right. I agree. On that one. I agree with you, but it, that's one in which um, a lot of people pick the right answer for a less important reason because mm. they're like, "Oh, it talks about more things." It's like, yeah, but if the if it had the problem that these other tempting answers had, it would not be correct, despite the fact that it talks about more things. Because the other more one, things, yeah, like the conclusion it said, like the conclusion was like, therefore. X, Y, and Z will happen. I think it's just X and Y. My explanation for that. So it, it basically, you're talking about the one where it says, um, it's about warmer winters, regions with warmer winters. And the conclusion is basically greater spring flooding and less storable water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That's the one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'll have to take a look at that. Cause I, when I explain that question now, I, if you object to the argument, Mm -hmm. The conclusion, greater spring flooding and less storable water. Mm-hmm. It's like, hold on a second. What now? And, and I can always imagine when I deal that, when I teach that question, I can imagine somebody in a courtroom going like you get a witness on like cross examination, right? Mm-hmm. And you have them describe to you what spring flooding looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you can catch them off guard, they start going off about, yeah, 12 feet of water. And it's just, you know, like they start describing to you what a flood looks like. Yeah. And then you scratch your head and you go, now you've just described this great flood. And now you're telling me, but there's going to be less storable water. What? Why? <laughs> because the, those two, the two bits of the conclusion are at odds with each other. Oh, really? Or at least naively they are. Yeah. I mean, I guess I right? see it as the, they're saying the water is snow is storable. Whereas- sure, but it didn't say that. Like, we all know in real life that snowpack is an important way that we store snow mm-hmm. or that we store water, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. there's more snow in the Sierras than there is in all of the reservoirs, you know, by far. Mm-hmm. And, but that, that wasn't a premise. Mm. And so the correct answer because it supports the idea of both the correct answer says in other regions it's an it's an analogy to other mountain ranges right but it says in other areas where this has happened like mm-hmm. warmer or whatever mm-hmm. there is both greater spring flooding and less storable water mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because it supports both because it's an analogy but because it supports both sides of the conclusion and that because those two sides of the conclusion were kind of at odds with each other that's my not only that but you can get rid of the wrong answers right yeah i guess i that's one reason why that answer is correct but i feel like the uh the comparing 
apples to oranges issue that the other answers have is a much more serious reason why they're wrong. You know, like they only talk about maybe greater spring flooding or less storable water. I can't remember which one. Yeah. But by comparing apples to oranges, they're like dead wrong. But a lot of people miss that too. They just don't yeah. see. So it's a well, good I, one. I think maybe, yeah, I think it's another good teaching question. And it is kind of a weird one, right? That's one that makes people scratch their heads. I'm glad we, we got to it because I think I, I am, I did just add it to our list here of questions because that's a, that's one where like you could spend, five pages discussing just this one question, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of different ways to get there. Mm-hmm. Objecting to the argument in the first place is always a good start. But then if you don't like, you know, you, you can also just sort of back your way into it by eliminating the wrong answers that are mm-hmm. potentially wrong for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you, you can get that one right if you just refuse to pick wrong answers. Yeah. Right, it's an important LSAT logical reasoning skill that I think people miss a lot. They're just like, "Well, yeah, I didn't." You know, they, there's something about the right answer that they don't like, so they don't pick it. Mm-hmm. But then they don't like judge themselves harshly enough for the one that they did pick. Yeah, because it's like, dude, but that doesn't. You know, <laughs> that's like, f- like conclusively, fundamentally wrong. Yeah because of reasons and you didn't see that part <laughs> because of reasons <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah okay cool um email help at thinking if you have uh, a candidate for weirdest lsat logical reasoning question that you would like us to discuss on the show maybe we'll uh write a book one of these days or we are going to uh, add a lesson i don't know if that's happened yet but we're going to add a lesson to the uh demon premium the uh, course that we have in the demon premium we're going to add add a lesson on weirdest lsat questions we'll have links to all those questions in there yeah okay you want to take this uh top down verse versus bottom up oh and flaw okay oh interesting okay hey y'all i've been using the demon for a few months now you guys talk about top-down versus bottom-up in the videos. I understand the basics of what those mean. For top-down, everything in the passage is true, and the passages or the passage proves the answer choices. For bottom-up, you use the answer choices to prove the passage or assume the five answer choices are true and then go back to the passage. But what question types do these categories include? Okay, and then she has Anne has a question about flaw questions. But let's start with this. One thing you say here is you say, and then you use the answer choices to prove the passage or assume the five answer choices are true and then go back to the passage. Um, in bottom-up questions, just so you know, you always assume that the five answer choices are true. Uh, I can't think of an exception right now. Well, I mean, the hallmark of one of these bottom-up questions is it says in the question stem, it says the words, if true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not real hard. Or it's Which one of the following, if true mm-hmm. would most strongly support the argument above yeah and so yeah go ahead so um when i think about the question types that fall into these two categories i would first start with inference and strength in questions they're the ones that i compare and contrast uh the most frequently but you can pull put a, a variety of question types in there but i would start with these two so Inference questions, or what you call them, Nathan, must-be-true questions, are just questions that say something like, which one of the following answers must be true? Or if the statements, I'm sorry, if the statements above are true, 
if the passage is true, then which one of the following answers must be true? And that's a top-down question because it's asking you to assume that the passage is true, that everything that you read in the passage is true, and then you're just trying to figure out which answer is proven by those claims in the passage. So that's a top-down question. Whereas uh, <clears throat> strengthen questions are bottom-up because they say something like, which one of the following answers, if true, most strengthens the argument above? Um, that's bottom-up because you're assuming that the five answer choices are true as opposed to the passage, and then you're trying to support the conclusion in the passage above. So those are two examples. So must be true is in the top down category and strengthen is in the bottom up category. But the same can be said for weakened questions. Weakened questions say which one of the following, if true, most weakens the argument above or the conclusion above. And that's a bottom up question as well. It's the same as strengthen. The same with paradox questions. Which one of the following, if true, most helps to resolve the apparent paradox above? It's bottom up because you're assuming that the five answer choices are true. Sometimes people, when they're questioning answer choices in paradox questions or even strengthen or weaken questions will sometimes say, well, I didn't like that one because we don't know that. And it's like, yeah, yeah you don't know that. That's why it said which one of the following, if true, most helps to resolve the paradox. It's like it is going to be new information to some degree, uh, and that's okay. Uh, also, sometimes people will be like, I didn't like that answer because it contradicted the passage. Um I find that to be very, very rare. Usually what's happening is someone is misreading either one of the claims in the passage or they're reading one, misreading the answer choice itself. Yeah, or not, not even necessarily misreading, but they're not interpreting it in a way that that allows it to be consistent, right? Mm-hmm. There's many different ways that you can... Re- I mean, hey, words have multiple meanings, right? Mm-hmm. Phrases have multiple meanings. And so lots of times... Yeah, students will go out of their way to to read an answer choice in such a way that it conflicts with the passage in order to get rid of it. But you're not reading the question. I mean, the question said, which one of the following, if true, would do the most to explain the puzzling set of circumstances above mm-hmm. or whatever? That's a paradox question. Yeah. And in that case, like the you know, one of the answers does have to be right, and you have to interpret it in such a way that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, the four wrong answers, they're not going to be wrong because they conflict with the, I mean, maybe they could be like, I don't know. What I do know is that the one right answer is going to just be consistent with both sides of the paradox. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to interpret it in such a way that it is consistent with both sides of the paradox and then provides you with a satisfying explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So another question type would be, uh, sufficient assumption, which one of the yep. following, if assumed, enables the conclusion to be properly drawn. They're asking you to assume that the five answer choices are true and then figure out which one uh, not only does <laughs> the most to prove the conclusion, but actually proves it. Yeah, by the way, it doesn't have to say assumed in order to be a sufficient assumption question, right? It could say which one of the following, if true, would allow the conclusion mm-hmm. to be properly drawn. That's also or a sufficient if, assumption question. If valid, they could say that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, they could also say which one of the following enables the conclusion to be properly drawn. Yeah. And I think I've seen that once or twice. It's or very which rare, one of the following would justify the conclusion? Or would the justify, above. yeah. Yeah. But notice what they're doing. They're saying, hey, they're essentially asking you to assume that the five answer choices are true and then use that answer choice to prove or yep. strengthen or weaken or explain the passage. These are all bottom up. Now, what's interesting is that necessary assumption is top down. So if if you think about assumption questions and you just kind of batch them into the same category, you just think, oh, yeah, oh, this is an assumption question without clarifying whether it's necessary or sufficient. You're heading down (laughs) a not-so-easy path because these are fundamentally different questions. In a necessary assumption question, the question asks you, which one of the following assumptions does the argument depend on, which means need? So which one of the following is an assumption that the argument requires? So what do you have to do? You have to assume that everything in the passage is true, including the conclusion. You're saying if the conclusion is true, if the person is going to try to get to that conclusion, which one of these answer choices do they have to agree with, do they have to accept as true? Um, If they don't, they're going to have a serious problem. That's a top-down question. Uh, You're not asking what would happen if the answer choice is true. You're asking does this answer choice have to be true? Yeah. So anyways, so so far we've talked about must be true and necessary assumption fall under the top down and then strengthen, weaken, paradox, sufficient assumption. And yeah, that's all we've talked about so far that fall into the bottom up. Now, I consider those question types to be the classic like top down and bottom up question types. But there are other question types that I would I would say the rest probably fall into uh Top down, right? On to some degree. I mean, I don't know if it's as important to think about them in that way, but they certainly do. Like flaw questions and reasoning questions and role questions, even conclusion questions. Because in conclusion questions, they're they're just asking you, "Hey, what's the main point of the passage?" Yeah, of course, those are all top down. Yeah, you just go find the main point in the passage, and then you look for the answer choice that restates that. You're not trying to ask, yeah. "Is this true?" You're saying, "Is this what they said as the main conclusion?" Yeah, I I think we're on the right track here with must be trues or in inference or in the demon we call a lot of them supported questions, right? Yes. Soft must be trues mm-hmm. versus uh, strengthened questions. That's a good you know that's a good bellwether uh, to see if whether if you understand the difference between top down and bottom up. So um, I I wanted to, like again people just like they like to pick out two words in the thing. Oh, mm-hmm. most strongly supported. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they think they know the question type. Yeah. But they don't. So I think I've done this example on the show before, but which one of the following, if true, would most strongly support the argument above? Mm-hmm. That's a strengthened question because it's saying which one, if true, would do something to the argument. Mm-hmm. So that's a bottom up question asking you to say, hey, one of these five is going to change the argument, make the argument better. Yeah. But the words are almost identical. They're very closely. <laughs> the The other question stem is, which one of the following is most strongly supported by the information above? And now that's not asking you to change the information above. It's asking you to accept the information above as fact and then find one that is most strongly supported by that information. So that's a top-down, that would be a supported question in the yeah. demon. Yeah. All right. But you can also do necessary assumption and sufficient assumption. Mm-hmm. Necessary assumption being top-down and, or sorry, bottom-up and 
nece- sorry, necessary <laughs> being top down and sufficient being bottom up. Mm-hmm. You can also do weaken versus flaw. Mm-hmm. Because weaken and flaw questions can sound a lot the same. And I never knew that there was a difference between the two when I was first mm. teaching the LSAT. Yeah, right? yeah. I couldn't tell. Yep. That I would like lump them into one category. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I would miss one of them. Yeah. And now I wouldn't do that anymore because it's a very different analysis. Weaken questions are which one, if true, would, you know, fuck up the argument, basically. Mm-hmm. Flaw questions, which one is uh, a weakness in the argument above or the argument is susceptible to which one of the following, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a um, top down. At least the first step of the analysis there is top down because you yeah. have to ask which one did they do yep. for sure. So it's like a must be true or like an inference question mm-hmm. or like a supported question at first. And then it's, so it's not just which one did they do, but it's which one did they do wrong? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack the discussion. No, but. I think that's all great. As you were talking, okay. it made me think. Um, <laughs> my mind is wandering here a little bit, but it made me think about uh, parallel flaw questions. Because as you were talking, I was like, it's interesting how all these question types are like overlap with each other on some level, but you know, uh-huh. are also slightly different. But you have parallel flaw and parallel reasoning, which are also top down questions because you're you're looking at the passage and you're saying, Okay, now let me go find another passage that is parallel in its reasoning or in its flaw. And so the the initial passage is the basis and anyways, uh and then I started thinking, Oh, you know, my favorite question type is parallel flaw because it it seems to cover like almost every other skill that you need for all the other question types. Like if someone can become a badass at parallel flaw and really explain what they're thinking, I feel like that that just covers a lot of ground for the other yeah. question types. But yeah. parallel, uh, parallel reasoning too, especially on a parallel reasoning question where there's a flaw in the argument. Mm-hmm. I think we're saying the same thing. It's like you, you have to, if you can learn to not only, if you can learn to spot that flaw, mm-hmm. shit, you're already halfway there. Mm-hmm. Right. But in a parallel flaw question, yeah, if you can spot the flaw and then, you know, make an objection, probably ideally mm-hmm. you're going to be objecting. That's how you spot the flaw, right? As you say, Hey, hold on, this is bullshit. What? And then, uh, go down into the answer choices and just match that exact same flaw. Yeah. I, I, I feel you. If you can do that, you can do pretty much anything. Which is interesting because it's a question type that a lot of people hate and they tend to avoid, I think. And it's like, hey, look, just dig in and really start to understand why each answer choice is parallel or not, how it's not parallel to the original passage. And you can start to understand the logical differences that matter to the LSAT and the logical differences that don't matter as much, you know? And don't don't do that shit too formulaically either. I mean, no, I'm amazed no, how many no. people like with a parallel flaw. It's a big opportunity if you're skipping parallel flaw questions. I think that's a mistake because they've made an error of reasoning. And yeah, if it's number twenty three, I mean, it's likely to be hard no matter what type of question it is. Mm-hmm. But if if it's earlier in the in the section and it's a parallel flaw question, I mean, they've made a flaw. They're telling you there's a flaw. All you have to do is find that flaw. And then go match the flaw. 
Yeah. It's simple. It, you don't have to be get, I can't believe how technically people try to do these questions where they're all looking at each, you know, well, what this one says most and that one says some, and this one says some and this one, and then most what, you know, they're like all like, they're only looking at the individual trees and not seeing the forest. Right. Yeah. And I think it's valuable to understand that, but that's the, I always explain it as the icing on the cake. And if you go to the icing first, it's like, okay, but did you see that the cake isn't there or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> No, and it's like because um, some of these, it's it's a you know I don't know a false contrapositive or something which I would consider the cake the underlying issue, and it's it's like um, I didn't even get into those oh none of that other details none of that it's shit not matters matter. yeah no this. If, yeah listen if the given argument confused sufficient for necessary that's the correct answer is going to have that same flaw and mm-hmm. probably none of the other ones are. Yeah. I mean, unless there's multiple flaws, um, uh, let me apologize. Maybe you can hear the chainsaws in the background. Mm. Um, no, there are dudes climbing the palm trees outside my, uh, window right now as they do a couple times a year. And the dude just, I just watched the dude climb the palm tree with a chainsaw and now he's up there, uh, trimming the trees oh i can hear it now yeah hmm yeah sorry sorry about that listeners that's that's some skill yeah scary as shit he just he's got one loop he's got crampons on which he's digging into the tree with and then he's got one rope just like a belt it's sort of like belted around the tree and he's just leaning back against that belt yeah basically so he's got crampons in the tree and then the belt and that's it but he's about Shit, I can't even see him anymore. He's like higher than the second story roof <laughs> with palm fronds crashing down into the courtyard. Cool. Um, okay. I don't know. Do we want to say more about the, we kind of have a rambling discussion of top down versus bottom up. I think it's good. So, and continues also any tips for vlog questions? I constantly miss those. Well, yeah, we just did that kind of, right? Yeah, we did that a little bit. I mean, just to deconstruct it, I would say I have tips for the passage. I have tips for um, the answer choices as well. So really quick, when it comes to the passage, I've found that for some test takers, thinking about flaw questions as must-be-true questions, as you were just talking about, but in a slightly different way, can help them. So uh, in a must-be-true question, you're given a bunch of facts, and then you're asked to determine which answer follows logically from those facts, right? Like, what other answer choice must be true if those initial facts are true? Well, you can apply that same approach to the argument when you're facing a flaw question, right? Like, you read the argument. You should actually do this all the time. But if you're struggling with flaw questions, let's start there. You read the argument if it's a flaw question, it has to have an argument, which means it has to have a premise. It has to have a conclusion. And you ask yourself, okay, let me assume that these premises are true. Uh, if they are, um, what must follow from them? And how is that different from whatever conclusion this person drew? Because in a flaw question, the person drew a conclusion that either went too far or introduced new ideas. And that's not acceptable that doesn't follow logically from the evidence but if you kind of treat it like it must be true like oh what must be true given what the premises say and how is that different from the conclusion sometimes that can help people spot the jump in reasoning 
I don't know if you have anything to add to the passage before I jump into the answer choices, but... Um, I guess the only thing I would say is that I'm treating every single question on the LSAT exactly like that. Like it's mm-hmm. not, I'm not doing it this way because it's a flaw question. I'm doing it this way because I'm attacking the argument. Like I would do that before I ever even read the question. Yeah. 100%. Just, you've got evidence, you've got a conclusion that shit either adds up or it doesn't add up. There are common flaws that recur on the LSAT confusing sufficient for necessary being the most obvious one, of course, Mm -hmm. but you know, correlation, therefore causation, um, list of other, you know, 10 most common flaws or whatever they're, whatever. But, um, you have to tune into those because it's just bullshit. It's just like, no, what that doesn't, argument doesn't make sense. (laughs) Here's your evidence. Here's your conclusion. It doesn't make sense. And so you just got to be able to say why it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Why? And I'm doing that on every question. When it turns out to be a flaw question, then the correct answer is going to describe the flaw. But if it's a weakened question, then it's going to attack the flaw. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I mean, building on what you're saying is sometimes I hear people in class say, well, don't I have to accept the conclusion as true because it was said on the LSAT. It's like, no, no, that's the one thing in which you can take issue and you don't want to start making arguments for the, the test itself, right? You don't want to say, Oh yeah. Okay. I could see why that could be true. That's not the issue. The issue is why does that conclusion, why doesn't that have to be true? If it has to be true, if the premises prove that, then it's not going to be a flaw question, by the way, but in, in the vast majority of these cases, it doesn't have to be true, even if it's likely to be true, or you could see why it could be true. That's great. I don't care, though. I, I want to know why does it not necessarily have yeah. to be true. Think of that one reason, that one exception, why this might not follow, and if you can come up with that reason, that's going to help you see it's just at least ex- one of the flaws. It's so extremely lawyerly. Mm-hmm. This is just exactly what a lawyer would do, or mm-hmm. at least the opposing lawyer would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is why everything is fucked as soon as people lawyer up, mm-hmm. right? We can all get along easily as long as there's not two lawyers. Mm-hmm. But if you have a lawyer and I have a lawyer, now we're fighting. Yeah, because it's just like no matter how almost reasonable the argument is, like it can be reasonable, but if it's not proven to be correct then the lawyer in the room is going to tell you why. Yeah. Like, here's why you don't, you're sorry, but your ship is not tight enough. And yeah. I'm going to show you all the different holes in it. That's just LSAT logical reasoning, period. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the answer choices, and I've identified the flaw or sometimes multiple flaws, um, I'm going through them and I tend to ask myself two questions. Does this describe what's happening? Because in flaw questions, the five answer choices are descriptions. And then, uh, is this a problem? Now, the correct answer has to be yes to both of those. Yes, it's describing something that happened in this particular passage. And yes, that is problematic. The five answer choices themselves tend to start with two phrases. One of them is takes for granted that or presumes without providing justification and um, or presumes. So I don't know what I said, but presumes without providing justification uh, takes for granted that those are two common ways to start an answer choice. Another way is um, fails to consider the possibility that, and I think uh, if people can get their mind wrapped around what those phrases mean, then they can more quickly 
understand those answer choices, which tend to be super common. I, I just tend to replace takes for granted that or presumes without providing justification that I, I tend to replace those phrases with, does this argument have to assume? Because basically they just mean assume. So, and it's actually a necessary assumption. So does the argument necessarily assume whatever they say after those phrases? And if the answer is no, then that answer is wrong. Um, when it says the argument fails to consider the possibility that, <clears throat> in most cases the argument did fail to consider that possibility. The real question is, does that matter? Right? Like if it says the argument failed to consider the possibility that Nathan hates Halo Top, it's sort of like, yeah, I didn't even talk about Nathan, let alone Halo Top. Um, but does that matter? No, because it's irrelevant to whatever the argument's talking about. But if the answer is going to end up being correct, it's going to say something like, oh, the argument fails to consider the possibility that whatever, and that thing that it failed to consider may be a big deal. Um, yeah, it turns it into a weakened question. Turns really. it into a weakened question for that answer choice. Yeah, and there are questions. There's even like a question stems themselves that say like the argument is vulnerable because it has failed to consider the possibility that. Yeah, and that's interesting because then all five answer choices are basically weakened answer choice. Yeah, right? Would you consider I mean, that I a think, weakened question? Yes, I mean, that's yeah, what I was going to say. It's, it's, it's pretty I, much a weakened question. <laughs> I think that that most appropriately would be in a weakened, in, a, in the weakened category because yeah. it, it's vulnerable because it fails to consider the possibility that that means you basically have to consider if these five things are true, which one hurts the argument the most. Yeah. Because the argument probably did fail to consider all of those possibilities. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we're really geeking out now. Um, no, I just, uh, yeah, bottom line is for those since those answer choices that or answer choices that start with those phrases are super common, I would strongly suggest getting your mind wrapped around what they're saying because it's actually not that complicated. I think people think too much. They're like presumes without providing justification, and they'll be like, "Yeah, I don't think it provided justification for this." It's like, "Eh, okay, did it assume this or not?" You know, like I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too wrapped up in that language. You do have to read all the words, but you've got to think about the big picture. Mm-hmm. People get so caught up on on one word. They do that a lot with like principle, right? They're mm. like, well, yeah, but uh, is it a principle? <laughs> and I'm like, well, principle doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> it's just yeah. a thing. You're not it, like all they really wanted you to do here was strengthen the argument mm-hmm. or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Should we wrap that up there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Ann. Yeah. Thank you, Ann. Hopefully that was that was a wide ranging kind of rambly uh discussion but hopefully you found something in there that's uh useful question here that says when to make worlds i heard ben had a test of when to make worlds question mark people are talking about you ben (laughs) is that true what's the test james james this has to be one of the best emails we've ever gotten (laughs) i mean first of all it's about me Second, it's three sentences, um, and they're short and they're clear. Yeah. So, anyways, yes, James, there's a test. Here's the test. I'll try to be as concise as you were. One, uh, when I'm done writing all the rules, and sometimes even before I finish writing all the rules, but 
when I'm done writing all the rules, if I haven't already jumped into some world scenario or started creating worlds, I will still ask myself, okay, first question, which variable or variables seem the most constrained? Um, and, or, you know, fairly limited in the number of places that they can go. We don't need to use that exact language. I'm just looking at the variables in front of me and saying, hmm, do any of these seem like they're limited in the number of places that they can go? That's all. The next question I then ask myself is, I mean, I try to keep this as simple as possible. Okay, how many places? We talking like two, three, four, five, six, and then it, the the fewer places that they can go, like if it's only two places or three places versus six or seven or eight, uh, the fewer places that they can go, the more likely it is that I'm going to create worlds. Granted, we can create worlds even if it goes in six places, but it's just, it just becomes less and less likely the more slots that these variables can go in. And But that's not the only thing. And I think that's where most people end is they're like, oh, well, L could only go in two places. And Ben, maybe I'm misleading them by having that test. But they're like, he said, it's more likely that he's going to create worlds if there's only two places that can go into. So I decided to create worlds. Well, I guess I have a third question. And I think it's just as important as the second question. And that is, okay, um, great. L can only go in two places. But is that going to be helpful to me? That's all I ask. And I just imagine for a half second, if I put L in one, can I see any other immediate like benefit? Like if L is in one, do I now immediately know where J goes or N or something else? And if I can't see an immediate benefit before I draw anything, uh, I'm concerned that I'm going to draw it and then not do anything. So I like to see at least one, um, like positive effect from taking that assumption from assuming that L goes in one or whatever. So that's my okay. test. And if I don't see that, then I'm less likely to do worlds. I like to think about that as a, a domino. I want to see a, I want to see the first domino falling over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. if, if you do, if you put L wherever and then you know anyone else in any other spot, then that's, makes it more likely that you're going to make worlds. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so if you look at L and it's like, well, it can go in one or four, but neither of that, neither of those places are very helpful. Like knowing L is in one doesn't really do much and knowing L is in four doesn't really do much. Then even though they can only, L can only go in two places and that's exciting on some level when it comes to worlds, it's ultimately not something I'm going to pursue. I might look at other variables. Like I might look at a block, Maybe J and K are a block, and I'm saying, well, J, K can go in five places. That's a lot more than two, but boy, when I know that J, K is in one, two, I now know L has to be in four, and it looks like that might lead to something else, and that seems to be true for not just when J, K is in in one and two, but also when it's in two, three, or four, five, or whatever. So even though I have to create more worlds Based, if I'm going to base my worlds on JK, yeah, I still might end up doing it because the the third question I was asking myself, how helpful will this be, seems to be more promising than it was when I asked myself that same question for L. So, anyways, those are my three questions: what variables seem constrained, how many places do they go, and does it seem like putting them into those spots would be helpful? If the answers to those questions seem promising, then I and I jump ahead. And, you know, it can take a little time at first, but it's a test I do after I set up every 
set of rules. If I haven't started worlds already, because some of these become obvious world triggers, right? But if I haven't done that already, I'm still going to ask myself that to get my mind wrapped around the game. And as you do it, I think you get faster at it. Those three questions kind of mesh into one in, uh, over time. Yeah, I mean, I'm aggressively looking for opportunities to make worlds. I, If I can make worlds, I'll make worlds on every single game. My default presumption is I'm probably making worlds. There are many games, though, where there's just not a really good opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm not going to do it. But uh, there's for me, there's lots of triggers and there's not, there's not any hard and fast tests. There's not any hard and fast rules. Like I had somebody tell me last night, they had apparently gotten this from seven Sage that you don't make more worlds than the, than the number of questions in the game. I thought that was a really stupid bit of advice. Why would you ever think about how many questions there are in the game and then compare that to the number of worlds that you're going to have to make? That's just dumb. I mean, generally speaking, you shouldn't be trying to make six worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That's a lot yeah. simpler rule. Yeah. <laughs> is that like fewer worlds is better. If you find yeah. a way to make two templates that incorporate all the possibilities, great. Two templates, great. Three templates, great. As soon as you start getting to four and five and six templates, well, it's a lot of work now. Yeah. But I don't, I don't see why it makes any difference whether there's five questions in the game or seven questions in the game. Why should that be part of your analysis? I'm looking to solve the puzzle. You know, even if yeah. there's only five questions, if I had to make, let's say I make two templates and then I split it and then I split it again on half of it or something and I end up with six, mm-hmm. but they're like all totally filled out and they incorporate all the rules. Yeah. Am I really going to regret that if there were only five questions? Like, or would I not regret it if there were seven questions? That makes no sense. Yeah. It's really about whether or not the the worlds were full of dominoes that were falling. Yeah, right? I'm not counting. Easy. I don't care how many questions there are in the game. I'm looking at the games as discrete puzzles that I have to solve. Some of them I get five points for solving. Some of them I get seven points for solving. But the truth is I have to get them all right in the section. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So if worlds is the best solution... I don't care how many questions there are in the game. Yeah. Right. It's five to sometimes eight. Not mm-hmm. very often. Yeah. But if I solve the puzzle, then I get all the points and yeah. sometimes that's five points. Sometimes that's seven points. Who cares? Mm-hmm. I just don't think that that it, I, I can't, I can't believe that seven Sage is like teaching that as a tip that to yeah. me would go straight into the turd pile. That isn't, <laughs> I don't yeah. even look at it. I don't, I definitely don't waste time looking at it. <laughs> like how many questions there are. I'm not counting that. I'm looking at the setup and the rules and then I'm trying to solve the puzzle. I know this is a, di- a little bit of a tangent, but it reminded me of an email that I got two days ago. Um, someone asked, they said, Hey, I just saw one of your videos. I guess it was from a while ago. And in the, in it, you said to do the if questions first. I was like, yeah, I've said that for a while. And they're like, but has your advice changed because of the digital LSAT? Like, you can no longer see. And I was like, well, no, not really, because uh, if you just click next, you can see whether it's if or not right away, and then that's the decision, right? Sometimes I think 
yeah. people want to like read the entire question and be like, is it a must be true if question? I'm like, I, I never yeah. think about that. It's just like, does, is the first word if or not? And if it's yeah. not, then it's your, I keep going. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing with what you're saying about like, you're not, you're not spending that bandwidth thinking about the number of questions. Yeah. No, I totally agree. <laughs> the test of when to make worlds, it's basically yes. Yes, you should. You should probably be making worlds on most games. Uh, for sure, for me, it's over half. Mm-hmm. So default to yes. Look for opportunities. Yeah. Is there is there a really constrained variable that can only go in a couple spots? Even better, is there a block of variables, like two variables or th- three variables that can only go in a couple spots? Great, do it. Is there a conditional rule that you might be able to uh, just bake into your templates by making a world where the sufficient condition is true and a world where the sufficient condition is false? Mm-hmm. Great. Do it. You know, <laughs> the answer is yes. You need to be trying to do this. This is a, for me, a critical skill. There's no way I would be able to finish the logic games in 35 minutes if I didn't make worlds sometimes. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Okay, um, should we move on from that? Let's do it. You know, I've been thinking more, Ben, and I, I, I hope people don't think this is insensitive. You know the blind guy that sued the LSAC to get rid of the Logic Games? Yeah. The more I've been trying to like talk to people about that, like explain mm. that to people. Sure. Common sense, common, this just does not make common sense. What okay. do you mean you can't do the Logic Games because you're blind? Like if you start reading any logic game, mm-hmm. it doesn't have graphical elements in the game itself. It just has words. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that if there's a bunch of rules about like which birds are in the forest, you're telling me that that's discriminatory against blind people because sighted people will typically make a diagram. Well, yeah. I mean, wait, huh? would you ever encourage someone not to diagram? Games? No, but that's like saying we're diff- we're discriminating against you just because you're different. Like, at, <laughs> why can't you could if you? I, I imagine that if you're blind, you just solve it in a different way. You solve it in your head or whatever. But like, why can't I? Don't under I, I literally don't understand why that. How we could think of that as nope, that's just discriminatory. Oh, I see. Like, hmm. Well, I because guess next thing you're going to say is it like a question that a certain segment of test takers is going to struggle with. I don't think that's true. I just don't think that that's necessary. I don't, I don't see why that has to be true. I mean, think about what we're actually talking about doing. We're talking about putting there's six things in a parade and we're going to put them in order Mm -hmm. or there's seven students and they have to go with three camp counselors and we're going to figure out which camp counselor goes to which student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Most sighted people tend to make a, graphical representation of this they diagram it on a paper to solve it Mm -hmm. but the fact that sighted people do it that way i don't think that that automatically means that this is discriminatory against people who don't have sight i got you okay i i I, I, we're like going off the rails man i don't where does it i i just can't believe that that happened it just seems so crazy that that happened it's like, yes, many people do make a picture. I mean, because, Ben, you've probably had the student who said, oh, I just solved that one in my head. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would say there's, yeah. There, I mean, it's not very common, but I, I would say one person per test. Has, it's more common than people being blind. 
<laughs> now you just have to figure out how many people are blind and do that. But it's not impossible. Yeah, that's true. And they actually don't like diagramming. They find it confusing and slow. And yeah. I, uh, anyway. All right. I want to move on to this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah. I mean, what happened happened, but I, that that seems to me very poorly. That would seems it seems like many of these ADA cases are like completely wrong. I, I like it just doesn't make common sense to me. And maybe I need to check my vision privilege, but it's like I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't see how the fact that sighted people tend to solve it in a certain way or the fact that LSAT dogma says you should solve it in this way, you know, here's, here's the, here's a way to solve it. Mm -hmm. I don't see how that is automatically discriminatory against people who are blind and they should change the entire test because of that. (laughs) That seems just preposterous, but this is why I'm not a lawyer, I guess. It's your turn to read this question about recommendations. Okay. Mike writes in, hi guys. Hey guys. I'm going to eat I wonder if we could use voices. I've so like you know I listen to Audible. Sorry, tangent here, but I listen to Audible, and some of these like voiceover narrators are amazing, right? They're reading some story, and they seem to shift voices from character to character. And so then I try to do this with my kids, and I always get it wrong because it's like I can't tell who's talking until the end of the sentence because it's like like Jane said, you know, so it's kind oh, of a guess. Right. And so then I'm like, ahead. oh, shit, I was using the wrong voice. And so then they're like, Dad, just read it normal. <laughs> but in any case, um, I was like, oh, this is Mike. I could, hi, hi, hey, guys. I'm applying to law school about a decade after I finished my undergrad. See, we could use different voices for different people. I like that. That's Mike. Okay, good. let's hear you do it. That's okay. Mike. And I have a letter of recommendation that a professor wrote for me at the time already on my LSEC file. Sorry, I'm just... Now like, he's sounding kind of... What is that? That was like vocal fry or like he's... Is, he, is Mike a valley girl? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> or Visco. Visco girl? Um. Anyways... I can't even comprehend what he said because I was trying to read it so (laughs) poorly. Uh, Okay, so about a decade after I finished my undergrad, okay, so it's been over 10 years, and I have a letter of recommendation that a professor wrote for me at the time already on file. Ooh. Yeah, that's going to look strange. They're going to wonder, like, what have you done since? Why can't you get a recommendation from anyone now? Is a decade-old letter that was written closer to my last academic experience okay to use? I would say no. I would say yeah. I would say no. That sounds. Uh, I think you risk looking lazy. Mm-hmm. I think you risk the reader going, "Oh, you haven't done anything useful in the last ten years." Yeah. Hmm. It's just something that's easily fixed. Uh, you know, generally speaking, if there's something easily fixed, you should probably fix it. It's just gonna it's gonna look dated and, and it's gonna make you look old <laughs> too. I don't know. You're going up against all of the well, I yeah. You, it it's a missed opportunity, right? Yeah. Like you surely when you were an under I mean, boy, you must have been an if if you were like an amazing undergrad <laughs> if this letter is like amazing because you were the best undergrad that this professor had ever seen, maybe I could see leaving it. But then like surely you've done interesting stuff in the last 10 years. 
Or why not just send it back to him and say, hey, can you update this and send it back <laughs> if you really yeah. want it? And then it's easy for him to write or her to write because they can just say, oh, this is what I said before. You could even suggest that. Just update the date and sign it and send it back. Thank you. If you're still in contact with them. But maybe yeah. not. Yeah, but even then, I, even then, I go back to my missed missed opportunity. If it's mm. really, if it's actually ten years, you gotta have adult stuff you could talk about in the last ten years. I mean, why don't you set yourself apart from the crowd? You know, mm-hmm. the 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 crowd of twenty one year olds who only have academic letters. You could have professional letters that help help you to reemphasize that you're a serious professional person. By the way, Mike, if you're worried because your law school or the law schools that you're looking at applying to require an academic letter, uh, just call them up and say, hey, look, I've been working for 10 years. Can I can I have a waiver for that? Can you yeah. make an exception? And I would be shocked if they said no. Yep. So Mike continues, I appreciate the show, The Demon, and your remarkable ability to make talking about the LSATs and admission process engaging week after week exclamation point best Mike. Thanks Mike. By the way, I don't ever call it the LSATs. I think that's like from, well, there's like, I'd say half the students or half the people I work with do refer to it as the LSATs. And then the other half refer to it as the LSAT. I think LSATs is, was started in, um, legally blonde, right? I think that's what they say there. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. It, I this is another one of those things that I think makes you sound like a noob when mm. you say LSATs. I think we can just go with LSAT. Cool. I don't actually think you're a noob, Mike, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say I would I would say LSAT. All right. Uh wanna move on to this next yes, one? Sure. Uh this is an article from the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Which Ooh. Uh, New lawyers are swimming in debt. E- indeed. Okay. Indeed, indeed they are. Uh, we will link to this in the show notes. It says, uh, subhead says, most law school alumni have federal loans that amount more to more than their earnings one year after graduation. Yeah, no shit. Not even like slightly more than. Wow, that's crazy. Most? Hmm. Jesus Christ, really? The vast, the first sentence, the vast majority of law school graduates carry debt loads that exceed their initial earnings. New federal data shows. Okay. That is scary as shit. I guess it's not surprising when you consider the bimodal distribution of first year salaries, right? Most people True. are hovering around uh, 50 grand or something like that. And then the other smaller segment of law school graduates are hovering around 140 or something like that or 160. I can't remember, but yeah, if you have a lot of people and more people over around the 50 grand mark, geez, they're probably leaving school with 200, (laughs) I don't know, $200,000 in debt. Median earnings a year after graduation topped the federal loan figure for graduates from just 11 of about 200 law schools for which the U.S. Department of Education released data. The favorable ratios were largely for elite private institutions, including Cornell, Penn, Yale, Northwestern, Stanford, that send many graduates into high-paying law firms. 
For the rest of law schools, graduates' debt loads surpass earnings, in some cases by many multiples. For instance, at Barry University Law in Orlando, Florida, median debt of $168,000 eclipsed first-year earnings of $36,000. Oh, dear. The school declined the comments. Yeah, what do they have to say? Sorry, we just put you in chains and shackles for the next... 10 years or more. Graduates of the six schools at the bottom of the ranking carried debt that was more than five times earnings. Yeah, that's about what the Barry thing there is, is about five times. (laughs) You know, I I just really, we got to be honest here. If you have $170,000 of debt and your first salary out of law school is $36,000, you are never ever paying that debt back. You're going to have that debt for the rest of your life. You better hope for loan repayment because otherwise you are never paying that back. Don't pay for law school, y'all. For real. <laughs> don't pay for law school. I mean, the reason why this happens is because of the fucking scholarships, by the way. Yeah, because they've... Well, what? Because they got to pay for the other students? Yeah. The non-scholarship students, yeah. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. elite schools can charge elite prices because they're elite schools, right? The fact is, if you go to you know Stanford or Yale, you're going to walk out with a job that pays you $180,000. Like Even if you finish in the bottom of your class, you could yeah. still make $180,000 starting salary, which means that you could pay back your loans almost immediately mm-hmm. if you wanted to. Probably yeah. many of those people don't either because they just you know buy a Mercedes and just <laughs> spend all the money they make. But you you could at least you'd have the option to you'd have the ability to pay it back if you wanted to pay it back. Um, then people can't get into those schools, and then the schools that are just outside you know the truly elite start charging more money too because they're like, oh yeah, well we're almost as good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to charge you Stanford prices, but we're actually just, you know, whatever. Yeah. I was trying to think of a school that's almost Stanford. There's not really schools that are almost Stanford, <laughs> but you know, Berkeley might be one because yeah. you go to Berkeley, you're not guaranteed to go straight into like a big high paying job. Definitely not. And if you borrow Stanford money to go to Berkeley, um, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then it gets just scarier and scarier when you step out. I mean, Berkeley's at least in the top 14, but you take one more step down the ladder and you're at Hastings and a lot of naive people think that that's how it is. Like it's a, well, you got Stanford and then you got, you know, Berkeley's almost as good. And then you got Hastings is almost as good. <laughs> Ain't no almost as good. Like it's yeah. not close. It's not, it's not even, it's not even the same at all. Mm-hmm. most people who go to Hastings are not going to work in big law, which means they're not going to make the big money. They're not going to be making even a hundred grand, let alone 180 grand. Yeah. And if you borrow the same amount of money to go to Stanford that you're trying to borrow to go or to you know borrow Stanford money to go to a school like Hastings, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And that's what this article is about. Yeah. Anything else in this article that you want to talk about? Uh, they did say, let's see here, three of the law schools with the highest debt to income ratios have closed or lost national accreditation since the data was collected. Good. Some legal scholars, observers see that as a sign of market forces at work. Um, yeah, to some extent, except it's, 
it's a hugely regulated like system and I kind of wish that there was more <laughs> I'm not like it's weird cuz you you want to impose regulations to encourage transparency and to protect the consumer but regulations have an odd way I read a book like I don't know 5 years ago and it went through it just took one example it was the regulation of the of wall street basically and basically how regulations when they're first introduced like a kind of achieve their intended effect of helping the consumer like create more transparency but how the players in the field like the wall street banks right quickly maneuver around whatever the regulation is and then end up flipping it to their advantage and it, it went through how like Wall Street started with, you know, I don't know, some ridiculous like number, like ten regulations. And then it's like then it went to like a hundred and then it was like a thousand. And then it's like because they're like the regulators are trying to compensate for all these like maneuverings, right? <laughs> Anyways, so my long rant about this is that when it says some legal observers see that that is a sign of market forces at work, it's like I wonder in my mind how much of it how much have law schools taken advantage of the ABA and its efforts to regulate them and flipped it to their protection, right? Like we talk about the 509 reports. It's like if you are in the know, you make these small changes that have a big help for you and end up maybe actually even keeping other people out. Like how hard is it for other schools to come in and say, look, that's bullshit over there what they're doing and they're charging too much because it's too hard to become an accredited school, right? Like you could see it as a protection or you could also see it as a protection for the schools. So I'm just like the fact that only three schools have closed or lost national accreditation to me is a sign that the system's not working. I feel yeah. like in a real market, in a real market, like what happens? You have two or three big players and then a bunch of niche players. There is like that's kind of true in law schools. You have Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and then a bunch of other schools. But it seems to me like there's too many high-priced bottom feeders that still exist. They should well, be they all like, charge uh, the same price. I mean, it, like the the worst schools charge the same as the best schools. Well, and I think that's in part because schools are constrained by the ABA to provide a legal education in a certain way, making it very hard for schools to differentiate themselves. And I so think this, it's because they're fighting. Yeah. Like, I don't see, I'm just wondering how much the regulation is helping versus actually like just making it a very established system. And it's hard for information to get out. I was thinking about that the other day that the ABA almost seems like a front. Like it's yeah. a, it's, it's like the, the Fox guarding the hen house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually, if you just look closer, all it is, is just foxes all the way, <laughs> all the way down because yeah. they, yeah, the ABA is accrediting schools, but they're not really, there's no teeth in it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, mm-hmm. So that now they have this like, Oh, well, you know, we're, we have ABA accreditation. Yeah. Yeah. But you're Southwestern. I mean, you, you get later in <laughs> like, how well, is this school like accredited? The one they mentioned earlier, right? Like, Barry. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get, so we get down lower here. I want to just hit a couple of these highlights, um, Mm. especially for new listeners, man, you need to know this stuff. Um, a breakdown of first year salaries resembles a dumbbell 
that's a good way of thinking about it. Ben, you said bimodal distribution earlier, Mm -hmm. but a dumbbell, there's a cluster around the $190,000 starting salary and another below 75,000 and not much in between. Yeah. That makes sense for a dumbbell, right? There's Mm -hmm. some of the people are going to make 190 and some of the people are going to make 75. That's the two ends of the dumbbell. And then in the middle, there's nothing. Yeah. People really need to understand that. And they need to understand that top schools are going to be taking the vast majority of those $190,000 jobs. Um, lower ranked schools, there might be one or two people in the entire school that are going to make 190 and everybody else is going to make 75 or far below. Um, there's numbers here from University of Chicago. Federal data showed graduates with debt of $146,000. That's a lot. But they also have earnings of $170,000 at university coming out of university of Chicago. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's a fine law school. And if you go to Chicago, you can probably pay back your debt. I would still say don't even take the debt in the first place. Cause if you can get into Chicago, you can get a full ride to some other awesome school. Yeah. But if you do take the debt at Chicago, you know, you have a really good chance of paying it back. Get down here. The next school that they give data for is Southwestern law school in Los Angeles. Listen to this quote. Yeah. It says, we borrow our asses off. There's just really no other way, said Hillary Kane, the chief communications and marketing officer at Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles, where she earned a degree. <laughs> wow. She's really <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> let that sink, sink in for a second. You know, I, we'll, I'll give you the numbers first, and then maybe we'll look at Hillary Kane's um quote again, but it says Southwestern's median debt was the fifth highest nationwide at $193,653 compared with a median income of (laughs) $45,000. I think sometimes people foolishly look at these numbers too, and they think, oh wait, hold on. So that, so that's what four times. (laughs) Yeah. You can't, you can't live your life, uh, putting every dollar you have to pay taxes and you have to uh, eat and well live. just the interest on that just the, the interest, interest on that 193 is going to be, be at least ten thousand dollars a year oh my god yeah right so you're now you're making 45 grand and you have at least i'm being generous at least ten thousand dollars of interest on that hundred ninety three thousand dollars and that's just to, to tread water yeah <laughs> that's just not to have the debt increase so you make forty five and you're paying ten just in interest. So now you have thirty five thousand well, okay. dollars to live off. If it's a federal of. subsidized, if it's a federally not, subsidized though, loan, that, that, you're not getting one hundred ninety three thousand dollars of federally subsidized loans. All right, so it could be as low as like eight or nine, but you're still talking about a decent chunk of cash, and that's I'm, post that's post taxes. I, dude, I was using five percent there to get to my ten thousand dollar figure. Mm-hmm. I was so I was using, being very generous. Yeah, I was using 4% because I feel like some of these federal loans are like 2%. All right, but the average blended rate on the loans, I mean, most people are borrowing. Most people have some loans. They're going to be like plus loans and that type of shit, private loans that are going to be 7, 8, 9%. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, even if it is at 4%, yeah, you're still paying $8,000 of interest every year. Yeah. Anyway, we, her quote continues, we do care and are counseling students to not borrow so much, Ms. Kane said. Uh, 
that, you know, we borrow our asses off. There's just really no other way. It's so, it's hilarious. By the way, she's not practicing law. I, I wonder if she passed the bar. Because she's the chief communications and marketing officer at Southwestern. She's part of the scam. I mean, she probably makes a decent salary. She's working for the law school she went to. She's not practicing law. She's just selling the dream to more of these poor people. Well, if she took out debt to get that job, uh, she's the chief communications and marketing officer. You don't need a law degree to do that. No, you do not. She could be one of these people that like the school hires her just to make their employment numbers look better. You know, it's just mm-hmm. they're like, let's it, two birds with one stone. <laughs> she's just throwing up her hands like, oh no, there's just nothing. There's just no other way. Just no other way. We do care yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, we totally care. Oh, and we counsel people not to borrow so much. Um, yeah, but our tuition is seventy thousand dollars a year. Yeah, you're stuck there. You're sitting, and someone's saying, "Well, to come to your law school, I'd have to take out loans for seventy thousand dollars." Well, we'd encourage you not to take out that much, but you know what? That's not bad. I just walked. I just met with someone who's borrowing one hundred ten thousand. So seventy. You know, maybe you should consider that good and. Well, it's the price you have to pay to follow your dreams, you know, (laughs) even though half of the people who go to that school don't practice law or don't pass the bar. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the law, the, uh, it was from the wall street journal. It's called new lawyers are swimming in debt. This is the same thing we've been talking about for years, but you just got to be real, real careful. You know, the other thing. I, boy, I wish I would have been the reporter here because I would have loved to just ask Miss Kane, you know, well, but what about the people who don't pay anything to go to your school? <laughs> you know, because y- you give so many scholarships to so many people, those people go there for free. By the way, your numbers are your numbers. And the, this the article missed this bit. Mm. The numbers are actually worse than they look. The truth is worse than these numbers. Mm hmm. Because the, the debt interest. is one ninety three six fifty three, and the median income is forty five, yeah. but the people who are making more than forty five have less debt because they're the yeah. ones that were there on scholarships. The yeah. ones that are actually going to get jobs were there on scholarships to begin with. So, not only is this a ripoff, but it's a it's a worse ripoff than these numbers even show. And you're not taking into account; um, they're not talking about interest and. People don't realize that that can double your <laughs> or more the amount you ended up you end up paying, right? Uh, depending on how long you have it for and the interest rate, and then it's also just it's kind of deceptive to talk about your income. Like you have to pay taxes and not that much at forty five thousand, but still a lot for you. And there's just not that much money left over to pay loans. I don't know. It's just horrible. It it is horrible. If if you're at Southwestern on a scholarship, great. But if you're at Southwestern paying tuition, like I don't know how they must just be like you said, Ben, drinking the Kool Aid. Because if they were faced with the reality is that the vast majority of people who pay money at at a school like that are just making a huge mistake. That yeah, that is not a good decision. Yep. Um, okay. Hey, we should put a plug in here for. Um Rachel Gezersay and her book, The Law Career Playbook. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. If you um, <laughs> do go down this path, don't pay for law school if you can avoid it. And regardless, get her book. And don't be one of the folks who 
goes to these law schools, either fails the bar or passes the bar, but then gets a non-law related job. Uh, follow Rachel, Rachel Gezersay's advice now and set yourself up to kick ass and make the most of your degree. She went to Southwestern, by the way. And I mean, Which, I know successful yeah, that's why lawyers I remembered it. Yeah. <laughs> who went to Southwestern. I have, I have buddies who went to Southwestern, but and and that are practicing law, but they were there on a scholarship, and they're the exception to the rule. So you got to make yourself that exception. There's no, yeah. you're not going to walk into it. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on? We should. Okay. Uh, oh, new this career. This is you. Yeah, I think so. I can't remember. Anyways, uh, hi Ben and Nathan. I'm a new listener to Thinking LSAT. Great. I'm currently a dentist in my late fifties. Hmm. Don't okay. do it. <laughs> don't do it. Stop. <laughs> Keep cleaning. No, work I, for five more years. Yeah. Sell your retire. practice, maybe? Or get a practice. Maybe you don't have one. I'm thinking of going to law school part-time while still working as a dentist. I want a career change because I need something fresh. Also, I'm getting old and my back hurts. <laughs> Holy. Uh, I'm sorry. Please don't use my name on the podcast. But I look forward to hearing from you. Signed, Midlife Crisis. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know, man. I wouldn't go to law school unless you can go for free and you really enjoy this work. You can go for free and he keeps working as a dentist, like, and he likes it. Then, yeah, okay, I'm okay with that. I don't know what he would do afterward, but <laughs> uh, if you like it, that's really what it comes down to. I think if you enjoy it and you can go for free, then it's, I'm fine with that. There's no, <laughs> there's no question here. It's all just a statement. <laughs> yeah, are you asking? <laughs> there is no question. I mean, I I assumed that this person it signed midlife crisis. By the way, yeah. I I assumed that midlife crisis just was asking a question, but there is no actual question in here. It's just a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, my statement in response is: dentist is a much more lucrative and reliable career than lawyer. Mm. Don't do it. But as Ben said, if you can go for free and if you enjoy it, if you're just doing it for fun, then great. But if you're doing it, you know, it says a career change. Mm-hmm. If you're looking to do this as a career change and by that you're trying to tell me that like you need a career, like you need to make money. Yeah. If you need income still, I think dentist is a much better way to make money than lawyer. I mean, not even close. It's interesting that his back hurts. I'm I'm surprised they don't have better ways of. Yeah, you need to move the chair up more. No, I mean they do have to like hunch over you. It's a very yeah. awkward thing. Yeah, dentistry. I wonder if they talk about the that these days. How you can better hunch over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I mean, hire some young. Hire some. You know, I, I'm assuming like every dentist I've ever seen, they have like ten staffers, right, for one dentist. And they well, have this like person a, sounds like he works for a, another dentist. He may work in a practice, but I would say make your own practice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, start start your own practice. Figure out how to make more money as a dentist. Um, because starting over in your late fifties to go to law school, if you're really gonna like go hustle for a job as a sixty year old, I don't know what kind of a job you're gonna get. You're gonna face age discrimination. Totally. For justifiably, like what big law firm is going to want to hire you when you're 60 and invest time and effort into training you? No, they want to train you and then work you to death. 
But if you're 60, they would be like, shit, this person's literally going to die soon. We can't do that. We got it. No. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't like it. Thanks for writing midlife crisis. Yep. Writing table. Okay, a few episodes ago, oh, this was all the way back in, oh, yeah, it's only 218. We talked about the writing sample. Um, now that the LSAT writing is decoupled from the LSAT, mm-hmm. and now that it's typed and spell checked, um, we're kind of hypothesizing that law schools might start to take the writing sample a little bit more seriously. So we sent out a call to listeners uh, to submit sample writing samples, and we have two of them today. Hmm to shit on. Okay. So the subject of the email was writing sample for shitting on <laughs> um, okay. response to request in episode 218. While listening to episode 218, I realized that I know essentially nothing about the LSAT writing sample. So I decided to take up your challenge and submit a sample for you to tear apart before sitting down to write. I watched Ben's explanation, video explanation on the demon. Okay, cool. Um, hopefully mine's up there as well. I don't know if the team has done that yet, but we've both recorded video, multiple videos on the LSAT writing. Yeah. Cool. I will be taking the LSAT for the first time on November 25th. Oh, okay. Well, hope you did well. Uh, this podcast and the demon have been instrumental in helping me prepare efficiently and effectively. That's great. I, I only started studying in mid October and I've already made a 12 point jump. Yesterday, after 23 previous attempts, I finally scored 100% on a timed Logic Games section. Praise the demon. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Also, also, that's a really, that's fast. Yeah. Only 23 attempts? 23 tests? I mean, there's 90 of them available. Yeah. So, you know, this person, who is this? Marshall. Thanks, Marshall. That's awesome. Let's see. Uh, thanks to you. I discovered don't go to law school unless, oh yeah, that's that book by Campos. That's a really Mm -hmm. good read while we're recommending books. Don't go to law school unless by Campos. And I am completely committed to paying as little as possible for law school, hopefully in Austin, Chicago or Los Angeles, where my wife and I have family and friends. Oh, cool. Those are all cool places to be for what it's worth. I'm a 34 year old professional writer who currently works in advertising. So this particular writing prompt felt like just another 35 minutes in the office. I'm 99% sure I will regret (laughs) telling you that I'm a professional writer. Once you start shitting all over my sample comma, but fuck it. <laughs> I like, this, I like guy. this guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, he has a with PS gratitude, Marshall. P.S. I technically cheated by failing to turn off my Grammarly app immediately. So this, ha- this sample has 50% fewer typos than my usual work. Okay. Thank you for acknowledging that. So they both used, so we have another one down below from Galen. Mm-hmm. They used the same prompt, which is this BLZ stores. And where is that? What test is that in? We must have told people <laughs> to do this, and now I can't even remember what are what the chances. We... Yeah. Well, oh, wait. is it is it the June wait, 2007 hold up. You one? You can Google it. You can Google yeah. it, and it comes up on... So if you search for BLZ stores, which, of course, is absurd. And oh, it's a exist. sample topic... It's a sample topic on LSAC. Oh, okay, cool. And we must have come to this. <laughs> We're getting old and senile. This was only a month ago that we made Wait, this. 
Do we Paul. want a career change? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll become a dentist. <laughs> we'll trade. Um, <laughs> me becoming a dentist would be a much better decision than an existing <laughs> dentist trying to become a lawyer, <laughs> by the way. That Sad. would be far more likely to be successful. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's the, I'm going to read the directions for the writing sample topic. Mm-hmm. The scenario presented below describes two choices, either one of which can be supported on the basis of the information given. Your essay should consider both choices and argue for one over the other based on the two specified criteria and the facts provided. There is no right or wrong choice. A reasonable argument can be made for either. Then we get some facts here about a fictional store. It's called BLZ Stores, an established men's clothing retailer with a chain of stores in a major metropolitan area. And they are selecting a plan for expansion. Using the facts below, write an essay in which you, again, argue for one of the following plans over the other based on the following two criteria. Here, the criteria are, one, company wants to increase its profits, and two, the company wants to ensure its long-term financial stability. Those are not the same things, of course, right? Short-term profits and long-term financial stability can be totally two different things. Yep. Then we have, and I'm not going to read all these facts, we have a national plan and a regional plan. Okay. The national plan is you know, a large number of stores across the country over a short period of time. The regional yep. plan is, hey, let's just upgrade our home region, upgrade our facilities, product quality, and service. Okay. And then there's facts, lots of facts about the national plan and lots of facts about the regional plan. Okay. I think we're ready to go to these essays now. Sure. Um, maybe you read... Marshall's okay yeah uh, uh, right off the top here uh, I think we have definite notes here for Marshall I do anyway okay so Marshall starts BLZ stores an established men's clothing retailer with a strong reputation in a single metropolitan area wants to select a plan for expansion that's the first sentence this is not a good first sentence. It's not a good first sentence. It's they a, already it's know a fun, this. It's, it's written well, Marshall. That's not, yeah. We're not critiquing like the actual writing. But you don't need to say that at all. You're not advocating. No. Second sentence? Yeah, this is like background information. You're yep. restating what the test asked you to do. Yep. This uh, plan needs to satisfy BLZ's desire for increased profits as well as the company's goal of achieving long-term financial stability. Again... You can cut that. That's what the prompt told you to do. Yeah, you don't need. It's not a book report. You don't nope. need to re. You don't need to rehash the facts on the page. It, you're not following the directions here. The directions are you're supposed to advocate for one plan over the other. Mm-hmm. There's no advocating here. You, you got to. Where's your? I want your conclusion first. Yeah, you know, I wonder what video you watched in mine because I thought that's like the first thing I say. But anyway, that's what I, say too. I wasn't yeah. clear. I'm sorry. I need to update that. Of the two plans considered, the national plan offers an opportunity for dramatic growth over time, but it entails a much higher level of risk than the alternative regional plan. Cut it. Cut it. You're not advocating because the next sentence. The more conservative regional plan may produce a less dramatic increase in profits in the short term, but it is it is you're you're missing is significantly safer you're not you're not doing it right you're not you're not following you're not you're not 
um, following the directions, Marshall. Yeah. Which is really common, but you need to, you need to get right in there. It's, it's super formulaic that you can't fuck this up. Yeah. The first sentence, Mm -hmm. go ahead. Sorry. The first sentence needs to say BLZ stores should choose the national plan because, or BLZ stores should choose the regional plan because. Yep. In the very first sentence. Mm -hmm. Or you don't even need, I would say you might not even need because you could just say BLC stores should choose the national plan period next period paragraphs. and first yeah, e- either way <laughs> yeah, yeah you can make it one sentence or one sentence or two but you need to get to your best reason why they should choose the plan you want them to choose get get to a fact as quickly as possible now i'm going to be a little nitpicky here uh you put your period outside your quotes uh periods go inside the quotes I don't know. That's just, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I see that too. Well, I mean, Marshall dropped a word and put the period outside the quotes. So I'd rather you write less and then reread what you write. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Although this ultimately isn't, it doesn't turn out to be that long either. Marshall, you're wasting a lot of time here. The point, the big point is the first paragraph. You can cut the entire thing here because all you're doing is rehashing. I still don't know whether you want me to choose the national plan or the regional plan. I don't know. How, how is that following the prompt? It said you're supposed to be arguing for one side over the other, but your entire first paragraph is just like telling me the facts again. You know, I, I think I know what's happening here. Marshall watched my video and in my video, I don't know which one he watched, but uh, at, on multiple occasions, I've told people not to make the mistake of ignoring inconvenient facts. Right, like one way to to advocate for your position is to just ignore everything that's not helpful and just talk about the things that are helpful. But a good lawyer has to address the bad facts in his or her case, or the other side is going to pounce all over you. Right, and so I want you to come out strong and say, "Hey, they should do the national plan, or they should do the regional plan, or whatever," and then you can give your reasons why. But as you address those reasons, you need to make sure to also address the counter reasons. And I think that the easiest way to do that is to say, although this would be more risky, comma, and then immediately get back to talking about why it's better. Um, Concessions are a quick way to acknowledge bad facts and then address them too. It also forces you to grapple with them and that makes your argument stronger. And I'm afraid that he took that like too much to heart and is like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm considering all these like different angles and it's too soft. That could be, or it could just be that he's doing the default seventh grade five paragraph essay style. Sure. Right. Where it's like, I'm going to, I've been asked to write about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. No, no, no. Yeah. Just tell me. Mm-hmm. Just get right in there and tell me. And yeah. so this whole first paragraph here can definitely be cut. It's just, it's, you're, it's too, yeah, it's too even handed and it's not advocating. You, if you, in your first sentence or your first two sentences, you need to state your conclusion. You're probably in the first sentence, you need to state your conclusion because then I know you're following the directions. Yeah. Right now, after just one paragraph, I'm like, huh, I don't even know if Marshall is doing what we asked him to do. Yeah. Okay. He continues, although both options could potentially help BLZ achieve its goals. <laughs> don't, yeah, cut, cut. Cut. 
We still don't know what you want. The regional plan is the superior choice for several reasons. Um, I would prefer just the more straightforward BLZ should do the regional plan. Um, yeah, and case. then and and don't like it's it's a conclusion without any like substance to it when you say it's the superior choice for several reasons mm-hmm. i'm just still we're halfway through your second paragraph <laughs> and i don't have one reason you haven't told me one reason yep and even like i don't know something about it is like passive the regional plan is the superior choice i'd like him to say like just do this <laughs> but anyways yeah um first okay good 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 first the regional plan can be implemented using existing cash rev- reserves constraining and maybe even eliminating the need constraining and maybe even eliminating the need for interest bearing loans that will in- limit blz's options in the future much okay. better thank you um, and just to i'll give you your rewrite here marshall you take the entire two first paragraphs and you turn it into just BLZ should choose the regional plan because it can be implemented using existing cash reserves. Blah, blah, go. blah. Yep. You know, <laughs> like get to it. You need to get to that in the first sentence. Uh, I mean, this is a little more nitpicky, but I'm not sure I like the use of the word constraining. Constraining the need? Oh yeah, you, the right. You wouldn't constrain a need. You would. Yeah, I agree. Obviate if you want to use a lawyerly word. <laughs> uh, I would just say potentially. Limiting. Well, potentially. constrain. Yeah, I don't care. Whatever. Okay. I would prefer. I would just get rid of this. The phrasing slows it down. It's like too technical. Constraining and maybe even eliminating. Just say. Possibly eliminating the need for interest. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Possibly eliminating. Yep. Okay. Okay, Anyways, next. Okay, good. Another reason. The regional plan takes advantage of BLZ's two best assets, its strong local reputation and its experienced loyal staff. Okay, great. I like it. More reasons. Research has indicated that, double space, not sure why you have that there, Mm -hmm. BLZ's brand is viewed favorably by the regional population and BLZ currently enjoys... Strong customer loyalty. Okay. I, I guess that's one of the facts. from This the, is all um, great. Yeah, he's just yeah. rehashing the facts now. Maybe just skip to the next paragraph. Sure. Finally, the regional... Let's see. Does he ever conce- concede anything? Okay, no. Yeah, he does in the next paragraph, which is kind of weird that he went finally here and then in contrast. But anyway, go ahead. The regional population is growing, and this growth suggests that the area is thriving financially. By the way, that's a run-on sentence. You just gave me two independent clauses together without a comma separating them. Um, that the area is thriving financially. The regional expansion plan will allow BLZ to improve its product quality and raise its prices, satisfying the demands of the increasingly wealthy local population. Okay. This um, plan, I'm assuming or the, I don't know what you're referring to, but this will help BLZ achieve its goal of boosting profits without exposing the company to excessive risk. Okay, great. More reasons. In contrast, the national plan will force BLZ to compete with well-known national and international brands in new markets where the BL, where BLZ lacks, lack, lacks the resources that they have helped it 
that have helped it succeed at home, namely trusted staff and suppliers. Okay, so now you're telling us why the national plan is not good. The national plan could help BLZ grow its profits, but only after a long and expensive period of planning, building, hiring, and marketing to new potential customers. This complex process would be financed by debt and would undoubtedly place BLZ in a precarious financial position. This is all good. Yep. Ultimately, BLZ should adopt the regional plan and continue to build its customer base in its home region. The overly ambitious national plan fails to satisfy the company's critical goal of achieving long-term financial stability, whereas the solid regional plan will help BLZ remain stable, even as it unlocks new revenue and increased profits. Okay. Um, I think this is fine. I'm wondering if there are more facts that are positive about the national plan that Marshall has failed to address. We skipped a couple sentences, right, in that in that third paragraph, just for time. Um, well, I guess this is what I'm thinking is like you know the initial prompt it has these two long paragraphs filled with facts. Yeah, my sense is those facts are pretty equally distributed. So I would expect a little more like grappling with some of the facts and dismissing them, like as an advocate. Uh-huh. So I would hope for a little bit more of that. I would also hope that Marshall would use shorter sentences. I feel like. Um, this is not bad, but there's a lot of them where I felt like I was like tech piling on more yeah. and more stuff. This is written better than like 95% of the stuff we see. It's clear that Marshall can write, but mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. The, the, the sentences, it, it's just, it's not that hard to just put a period and start a new sentence. Yep. Um, good job, Marshall. Uh, definitely cut out the first paragraph and a half here. You don't need to set it all up. Just get right into your recommendation. But otherwise, I think Marshall definitely is following the prompt and uh, doing a pretty nice job. Yeah. Moving on to Galen, it says, Dear Ben and Nathan, I hope this email finds you both well. My name is Galen, and I live and work in Cambridge, Mass. I graduated with high honors from Amherst College two years ago with a degree in history. My 4.0 GPA led family, friends, and faculty alike to assume I was bound for graduate school, whether law or a PhD program. But with little to no understanding of what I wanted to do, I decided to work for a couple years to consider my options. I knew I remained academically oriented and took jobs on college campuses. As a result, I've been a staff member at Harvard's Graduate School of Education for five months. Prior to that, I was an academic coordinator and research assistant for several professors at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. Okay, yeah. Uh (laughs) Where is this going? (laughs) Bunch of stuff here about why I don't... Okay, got it. Uh, Responding to the challenge. All right, should we get into the prompt, the response yeah. here from yep. Galen? Let's okay. do that. Oh, and Galen helps us out here. This is from the June 2007 LSAT. Yeah, that's must have that seems like what we would have said is go find yeah. the June 2007 test. But now the writing sample topic, you can also just Google LSAT writing sample topic or BLZ stores and you'll find uh, this link on LSAC. Um for BLZ, this is this is Galen's essay here. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. For BLZ, as for any retailer, there are myriad examples of national clothing chains that have thrived by expanding their presence from their original base, colon, REI in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, now enjoys across the country a reputation as a trusted seller of mountaineering gear for novices and experts alike, semicolon, LL, this is all the first sentence, Ben, semicolon, (laughs) L.L. Bean, which started in semi-rural Freeport, Maine, has built its market share to the point that it has launched stores with sizable footprints up and down the East Coast. 
Just as easily, though, one can point to recent big-name brands that have folded or suffered serious capital losses in the arms race that is e-commerce, colon, Barneys, H&M, Nordstrom. Because of the inherent risks involved in national expansion, then, a company like BLZ, with a loyal and growing customer base in its home region, should consider its regional plan as the safest yet strongest route to increasing profits and ensuring long-term financial stability. (laughs) What do you think? Well, um, this is interesting. <laughs> this is a different approach. Uh, it's not the right approach. <laughs> I like that her last sentence tells us what she wants. Um, yeah, it's got to be his, no? Galen? Oh, Galen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, hmm. I would have... I I appreciate the effort that Galen is putting in here, but I would appreciate this more direct and upfront. You you don't need to bring in outside facts about REI and LL Bean and Barney's and H&M and Nordstrom. This is not, that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to use the facts that are in the record to advocate for your position. Yeah. I, I don't need you to lecture to me about how REI and LL Bean have done so well in retailing or whatever. That's not, that's just beside the point. You're not following the instructions with all that. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's just, that's not, that is not the, that's not the assignment. So it's, it's not how much do you know about retailing? Yeah. That's not the assignment. The assignment is to use the facts that were given to build a case for you. So it's more formulaic, Galen, than you think it is. And you just, I'm sorry it's more fun to write about shit, you know, about like that, (laughs) but that's not the point of the exercise. Yeah. So I wouldn't do any of that. Also, um, boy, that first sentence, Ben word count (laughs) on that. What is it? Well, you know, it was actually surprisingly readable for a sentence that was, 80 words long. Well, that's really because it has a colon and then it has a semicolon, which are kind of hard stops. It could that have first been. colon could have been a period. Yep. There was absolutely no reason to put a colon there. That should have just been a period. And then the semicolon was okay, but not in the same sentence as something with a colon. Like, there's just... <laughs> <laughs> just don't bit, do that. Just use a period, man. The period is your friend. It's a bit extra. It is a lot extra, especially <laughs> because, well, he then uses a colon and M dashes in the next sentence. Yeah. Which is also that's the, all the sentences are too long and you just need to use a, use a period. Yeah. Okay. Other than that, I mean, it is well written. It's just, it's just extra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's the first paragraph and it should have just been cut down to, they should do, you just only use the last sentence there, right? This whole thing should just say, because of the inherent risks involved in national expansion, a company like BLZ with a loyal and growing customer base in its home region should consider its regional plan as the safest yet strongest route. It's just, there's too many ands in here, (laughs) right? Yeah. As well. People get themselves in trouble with and all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, do we need loyal and growing customer base? Do we need um, increasing profits and ensuring long-term financial stability? Well, maybe we do there because that was the two bullet points, but 
Well, yeah, let's talk about this for a half second because we see, we see this in uh, personal statements all the time too, where people will say, oh, uh, a loyal and growing customer base. And it's like, okay, I get that you're trying to, like sometimes I'll delete one of those words and the person might object and say, yeah, but I also want to show that they're loyal. They're not just growing, they're loyal. But the problem with too many ideas is that you start to drown out those ideas, right? Like if you just get, if you just choose one, you say, Hey, which one is more important here? The fact that they're loyal or that they're growing. Um, and, and just give up a little bit of information to make the information that you do give more potent. Yep. Agreed. Next sentence. Yep. Our next paragraph supporters yep. of the national plan might rely on the evidence that many regional companies that attempted national expansion increased their profit, but it is important to examine the counterclaim to colon a greater number that tried this strategy failed and suffered severe financial consequences. Um, Galen is averaging three quarters of a colon per <laughs> sentence, which is too high of a rate. And I can see more colons down below mm. a lot more colons down below. <laughs> Even if BLZ attempted its national plan and failed, but remained afloat financially, it would detract from both its goals, colon, profit increases and the higher likelihood that its long-term financial stability was seriously, comma, if not permanently, comma, compromised. <laughs> we are, <laughs> I don't know why we're rehashing the goals. Yeah. It's uh, watch everyone really please rewatch our videos on this topic because neither of these essays are really just following our advice. You can write a one sentence introduction if you're even going to call it that. And you can write a one sentence conclusion mm-hmm. and everything in the middle needs to just be tying the facts to the goals. This and fact short, meets short this sentences. goals. This fact meets this goals. Both. Marshall and Galen are following are falling into the very common trap of writing their sentences way too long. Yep. You got to cut these sentences way too down. You got way, way, you got to cut them way too down. No. Way too down, yo. We got to cut them down a lot. Please stop with the colons. Stop with the semicolons. Just put Haven't a period. Have we revoked those privileges? Like we have revoked, revoked those so many times. I think that almost like invites people to use them. They're like, haha, well, I can use them. I know well, yeah, how. we've had people even say that explicitly. We revoke periods, short sentences, plain English. It's all revoked. <laughs> <laughs> no, the only thing you're allowed is short sentences, plain English, and the period. Well, <laughs> you only was, get one. <laughs> I was hoping by revoking it, people would start using it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, sorry, my bad. I didn't follow. Um, please, people fewer no colons no semicolons lots of periods and commas when they're appropriate furthermore while a positive reputation among its current customer base would seem to bode well for blz's national plan there is no guarantee that it would be able to attract new customers colon the new marketing strategy required by the national plan has not yet been tested in a country-wide market in addition to being Yet another new cost to bear, it therefore only increases the risks for BLZ with the reward and ominous, quote, TBD <laughs> on its ledgers. <laughs> what? Whoa. 
an ominous TBD. To be determined. <laughs> That's, okay. You don't need to do that. <laughs> Galen's not helping himself with that. Like, don't stop. Everybody, you know what? Stop being clever. <laughs> this is you're not this is not your chance to shine, okay? This is your chance to write a very straightforward just follow the fucking directions and just write clear sentences. You're not you're not actually advocating for yourself with this like when you're throwing in TBD, now it's like drawing the attention to you instead of mm-hmm. drawing the attention to the the case you're trying to make. Yeah. Um Perhaps most importantly, the company would incur considerable debt in attempting the national plan. Period. Ooh. Oh, yeah, that was good. Thank God. A sentence without a colon in it. Nice. As demonstrated by the aforementioned retail behemoths that failed despite a national footprint, which that's you making up your own facts, by the way, bringing in your whole thing about um, whatever H&M, you know, Mm -hmm. that that uh, failed in whatever that's you adding facts that are not in the record. Those facts are not in the record. You can't use facts that aren't in the record. Although you can use common sense, but not that you can use common sense, but I don't, you don't need to be adding. There's plenty of facts on the page. The facts that are in, there's only two paragraphs of facts, but you could write 10 pages. Just use just rehashing those facts, just showing how those facts do and do not meet the specified criteria. Yeah. Um, anyway, as also aforementioned, it's a lot. Oh, don't ever use that word ever. Yeah. As demonstrated by the aforementioned retail behemoths that failed despite a national footprint, this would expose the company to the possibility of a leveraged buyout. A move which, while perhaps saving the company financially, could sour its loyal customers by presenting the company in a new and unfavorably unfavorable light, comma, no longer owned, comma, operated, and ooh, no comma. So skipped the um, <laughs> the Oxford comma. skipped the Oxford comma there. Operated and controlled by its founders and original staff. Was that part of the prompt? I I, I don't. I don't know. Was leveraged buyout? (laughs) Or is this more? I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, you're just making shit up. That wasn't part. Okay. Galen, you got to calm down, dude. You're not supposed to be bringing in your own shit. There's you're not. So you're missing an opportunity here to use the evidence that's actually in the record because you're yeah. just going off r- rambling about leveraged buyouts in, <laughs> in the retail space. Um, and if the sun starts to dim a bit, then it's possible that a national company would be more yeah, affected than by right. a local company. Right. With new paragraph. With this in mind, the company's regional plan offers the greatest chance for achieving its two goals. On the surface, the plan's increase in the number and size of stores in its home area might seem to indicate no lesser risk than the national plan at depleting its financial reserves and lessening its long-term financial viability. That's like a concession there, but you haven't given me straightforward enough reasons to choose the regional plan. Like, Look, I, I want our concession to be short. Yeah. And a simple phrase like, although a regional plan offers less op- fewer opportunities for growth, comma, we actually have great, 
greater opportunities yeah. for that growth within yeah. this area, right? Like you're defending, like, a, like, you're defending like a murderer, Ben. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thought experiment. You're defending sure. a murder suspect. Yep, got it. And he has a lengthy criminal record. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, this criminal record is going to be introduced at, at trial. Yep. Which a lot of cases it wouldn't be, but for whatever reason, some of this stuff is going to be admissible. Yeah. You're going to acknowledge that your client has made some mistakes. Yes. But that's basically what you're going to say. (laughs) It's true that my client has made some mistakes. I might even say it's true that my client has a criminal record because you don't want to invite the uh, jury to be like, wait, make mistakes, you're sugarcoating it. Right. But you're not going to elaborate the... (laughs) You're not going to ask the judge if you can have extra time so that you can, you're not going to like call witnesses, you know, (laughs) discussing all the crimes in detail. Yeah. That's not advocating for your client. You're, you're doing so here. Galen is doing too much arguing against himself. Um, anyway, but the company's own trial runs indicate that this is not a logical fear. Colin, While the facility upgrades and product quality increases would bring about price increases, the store where BLZ tested these changes showed that customers were willing to pay more for the increase profits. Huh? Uh-oh. What? As the sales and profits increased in the test dash location. Whoa. What? That was Galen's worst <laughs> sentence by far. It's just broken a couple different times. So, so Galen... You know, here, think about this is actually, I think, going to be potentially really helpful for the listeners who are trying to write this writing sample. Galen went off on all this bullshit about Nordstrom and Barney's and stuff and leveraged buyouts. Mm-hmm. Galen then did not spend enough time editing his own shit. I'm here to judge the quality of your writing, Galen, not the quality of your knowledge of the retail fine, leveraged buyout industry. And so now I'm looking at you as like a eh, questionable writer because you didn't fix these two, you know, the, that's just a broken sentence. Yeah. Which that's the devastating thing. Like you, it has to at least be cleanly edited. Mm-hmm. No dash. Why do people put dashes in things like test location? I don't know. That's strange. If it it's were, just, if a there were a noun location. afterward and they were trying to modify yeah, if it, it was test make- location, bathrooms right <laughs> if you were talking stupid. about the bathrooms at the test location then yep. you could put test dash location bathrooms it, yeah mm-hmm. yep. okay additionally the company already has the cash reserves required for such a reinvestment in its existing region and that it can rely on its existing staff supply chains and contractors to manage the facility upgrades and product development means that it could channel any savings from the profit increases toward its long-term financial strength. God damn it. That's a terrible sentence too, Galen. It's too long. You should have just put a period after region and then started a new sentence. Everyone needs to write shorter sentences. Everyone needs to reread Jane saw spot run. Okay. Right. Like those, remember those sentences? Jane saw spot run. I have no idea what you're talking about. Wait, what? 
That's like those like those are like the first sentences you learn as a kid. Oh, 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 oh. I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Just go back to that. They're short and sweet. Short de- short declarative sentences. Yeah. Subject, verb, period. <laughs> like just calm down. Like you're trying to put, there's no reason it's like people think they have a limited number of sentences and mm-hmm. they're trying to squeeze as much as they can into those sentences instead of just putting a fucking period and starting over with a new idea. Mm-hmm. This is two totally separate region, separate reasons. And it ends up being broken or at least the reader thinks it's broken because I thought the list wasn't parallel. Right. Read from the beginning of this sentence. Okay. Additionally, the company already has the cash reserves required for such a reinvestment in its existing region and that it can rely on its. I'm like, what? What do you mean? Additionally, and that. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't. Yeah. It's, but what he really did is comma spliced. Right. And now he's going into this. It's a new sentence. The fact that at, that it can rely on its existing staff supply chains and blah, blah, blah means that it could channel any savings toward whatever. I'm lost. Yeah, because isn't there like a missing that earlier in the sentence? or is it Exactly. Just- That's why I thought it was broken. I think it probably yeah. is broken because it's just... <laughs> I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that needed to be two sentences. Last, demographic change dash local population growth dash... That's, those are M dashes, uh, means that BLZ could afford to turn down the potential customer base gains offered by the national plan. Indeed, everything it might need, M dash, from the word of mouth marketing by its loyal customer base to a new and evolving population to whom its high quality products <laughs> and local history could appeal, M dash, to grow its profits and ensure long term financial stability is already within reach. <sighs> Shorter much. fucking sentences. Stop it with the parenthetical M dash stuff. Stop it. That's two sentences in a row, by the way. It's, this is as if you didn't even reread it. Because mm-hmm. I think if, like, if you reread that, I think you would notice, oh shit, I did the M dash thing. No, I think two Galen sentences is in a row. These. I think he's. Um, this is the best Galen fancy. can do? No, I think he's. Um, oh, he's, he's doing the chef's kiss. He's reading this and like, mm. <laughs> yeah, another masterpiece. Yes, but like I mean, Galen is familiar with a lot of words, right? He's an academic, and uh, academics encounter a lot of words. They get familiar with a lot of words, and I'm I'm thinking that he's enjoying using these words. That he enjoyed writing this and putting this all together in this way. But it's it's not the it's it it's not doing what. I think you intended. I'm assuming that Galen did this in 35 minutes because that was the assignment. I'm giving Mm -hmm. people credit for like, I'm sure he did, but I think he reread it. I just, Galen, you need to, you you wasted too much time with the whole introducing facts that aren't on the page. And then you didn't spend enough time cleaning up the writing. There's errors. And then just, I guess, yeah, back to the same advice. Generally speaking, you just got to write shorter sentences because you're getting yourself in trouble. Yeah. Long sentences invite those problems. Yep. Last paragraph. Yes, there is a high comp. Sorry. Yes, there is high competition in its region from national chains offering lower prices, but the reputation of such companies can change for the worse on a single misplaced advertisement or quote tweet. Colon. The word tweet is capitalized and in quotation marks. Hmm. 
I think you don't need either of those. I believe tweet is a, you could just use that as a word. Yeah. But also why are you talking about tweets? That was not part of the fact pattern. I think again, you're making shit up and you are because colon consider LL bean again, comma, which comma after the media revealed one of its founders had given money to the current president, comma suffered heavy losses and a boycott campaign. Cut. <laughs> Cut. You do not need to bring Trump into this. You don't need to bring any current events or any facts. There's way too much outside shit in here. Yeah. It's all a waste of time. Like, I get that you're being clever. You know, you're like trying to sort of show off, but the showing off has made it so that the whole, the writing as a whole is not that great. And you're just not, you're not advocating well enough for using the facts that were on the page. There were plenty of facts there that you could have used to advocate for either of the plans. Yeah. Um, therefore BLZ should avoid experimenting with new marketing and national expansion in unknown markets and stick instead to what it knows colon (laughs) high quality products and the further cultivation of a lawyer customer base that can only get bigger as more people move to the area in which it currently operates. Whoa. Last sentence here regional plan. It doesn't say the regional plan, Ben. It just says regional plan, which by the way is capitalized as if it's a person. (laughs) I feel like uh, Marshall did this too. Did they capitalize it in the prompt? Nope. They did not. The prompt has it lowered case. So wait, hold on. Did Marshall actually capitalize it? I feel like I saw that. I think it was just earlier in Galen's and we didn't, Uh, we didn't nail him for it earlier, but yeah, don't capitalize things. I mean, if they capitalize it in the writing sample prompt, fine, but they didn't hear. No. And then this sentence is broken too. Boy, you know, think about the taste you're leaving in the mouth of your reader. When you say regional plan might mean fewer stores, but quality over quantity is an adage. Even retailers should heed. (laughs) I mean, putting aside it's like passive well and just it's like too cutesy right it's too Mm -hmm. clever it's cheesy the adage even retailers should heed i don't need any of that i need the facts but that sentence is broken because it doesn't have the at the beginning of it Mm. you can't just use regional plan like that as if it's a name that that's not what the facts said the facts said that they have on their table, they have a national plan and a regional plan or the national plan and the regional plan, but they're never mentioned in the facts as, you know, it's not a name of a plan. Yeah. Well, it's weird too. It's kind of like, um, it's not the strongest point. Like I get it that he's conceding that there might be fewer stores, but that quality over quantity is, something that they should follow. But that's your last and final point. It's so vague. It doesn't have anything to do with the goals of the company. Yeah. I mean, the last sentence really should say for the above regions, BLZ should choose the regional plan. Yeah. Right. And, and then everything else in the middle should just be point after point after point using the facts and tying them to the goals. So takeaways. Yeah. Everybody needs to write shorter sentences. And the first sentence is, 
I mean, I feel like I say this in my videos, but just make your first sentence. BLC, BLZ stores should do X, the national plan or the regional plan. Yep. And that can apply to any writing prompt because they're asking you to make a choice between two options. That's your first sentence done. Yep. BLZ should choose the regional plan, period. That's your first sentence. And then your last sentence, for the above reasons, BLZ should choose the regional plan. Yep. Boom. And then in between, you just fit in as many of the good things about the regional plan mm-hmm. and as many of the bad things about the national plan. Mm-hmm. And you don't make anything up. If there are good things about the opposing plan, quickly concede them and address them. Just say, although this would be But nice, our plan's better. But this or, is why. But look at the bad things about That's that. That's not plan. as important as this. Exactly. Or whatever. And yep. same thing with potentially bad things about your plan. You might grant one of them to try to defuse it. Mm-hmm. But you'll want to reemphasize something good about your plan or something bad about the opposing plan. Yeah. Or may minimize the significance of that, right? Like, yeah, although there'll be fewer stores, uh, we don't care about store numbers. We care about profits right. or whatever that are consistent with the goals. <laughs> if they said they want more stores, then don't say that. But connect it back to the goals. That's all you have to do. Holy shit, Ben. We're like two hours plus. Oh, my God. Wrap it up? Yeah. Oh, my audacity has not been recording. Don't. You're lying. I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just reminded me of that time. That Ugh, time. Well, times three times, yeah. dude. We've we've had our technical difficulties along the way on two hundred and twenty three episodes. <laughs> um, anyway, check us out on Facebook. Uh, we do have a group there. Give us a like. Follow us on social media. We are at Thinking LSAT. Visit strategyprep.com and foxlsat.com. Uh, Ben's got classes in DC. Those are strategyprep.com. I've got classes in LA and San Francisco. Those are foxlsat.com. We also do uh, one-on-one tutoring. lsatdemon.com is our joint online study tool. It's the only way that you can get both me and Ben, all of our videos, all of our written explanations, and an AI tutor that gives you questions at your appropriate level of difficulty. Boy, what doesn't the demon have, Ben? It has full-timed practice tests. It has timed sections. It has extra help sessions for the premium use. Actually, for everybody, huh? They get uh, one extra help session a month right now for regular. And are we really doing two extra help sessions a week for premium Right users? now we are, yeah. Holy are. shit. Mm-hmm. Those are drop-in office hours. Oh, hey, Ben, I'm doing tonight's extra help session. Oh, you are? I oh, volunteered. Awesome. Shay was taking yeah. a uh, law school exam and looking for somebody to fill in. So I'm going to be the surprise special guest Yeah, that's cool. At I'm Extra sure people will be happy to see you. Well, or they'll like immediately log off. The, Fuck, I was hoping it was going to be Shay. <laughs> uh, you can listen all sorts of ways to the show. Um, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on YouTube, Stitcher, thinkingelsat.com. You better start listening to us now on Spotify. Just get ready for the new year because we, we need to be on your um, greatest artists of the year 2020. So you got to make sure that you listen to more of thinking outside than anything True else loyalty. Uh, in your whole Spotify account. Um, yeah. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get a chance to leave us a review. We don't uh, pay money for advertising, so you got to help us uh, spread the word. Anything else, Ben? No. Thank you for listening. As yeah. Always. 
That was episode 223 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. Ha ha ha.